For the rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Yeah, I feel like if I don't bring energy, I'm really going to let the, the music team down now. I, I'm <laughs> Verse 17 of chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac, your descendants, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we are your children, that you do love us so much, and that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from that love. Our God and our King, we give ourselves to you fully and unreservedly, resting in that magnificent love. Thank you. Thank you for our kids, Lord. As they go to children's worship, would you let the message of the gospel pierce their hearts? that they would trust you with all of their being. And Father, as you're doing that work of salvation, please don't skip this room either. We need you, Lord, to pierce our hearts with the truth of the gospel. If there's any here today who have not put their trust in you, may today be the day of salvation. Father, if there's some of us who are uncertain, would you please give us that certainty? Will you comfort our hearts? Will you convict us? And will you draw us ever closer to Jesus? And will you do this so that he receives all the glory? We ask in his name. Amen. We've been going through the book of Hebrews um, and uh, considering it, remembering the context in which it was written, remembering that it was written to Hebrews, that is to say Jews of the first century. And most of these Jews were were people who had put their trust in Christ, but they'd grown up within Judaism, and they'd grown up uh, following the the old administration of the covenant of grace. And now they were in this transition time, and and, uh, the author of Hebrews is trying to invite them to keep moving forward in their faith in Jesus, to not fall back into the old covenant, but to keep moving forward. We keep that in mind, and, and I want us to just think for a moment. Imagine if you were one of them. A Jewish believer in the first century. And what were you facing? And what would the future look like to you? And as you look about what's what's ahead, based on what you're seeing, what would you be be thinking? What would you be anticipating? What What would the future look like to you? Recognizing that where you are, you're being persecuted by the Jewish leaders, the leaders of your own church, the leaders of your own community that you've grown up in, and yet they were persecuting you because you believed in Jesus. But not just them, the governmental authorities, the Roman Empire was also persecuting you because you believed in Jesus and you're looking to the future and this is what you see. You look around you and you see that you're surrounded by immorality, which was a part of the Roman culture that was uh, uh, the culture in which you were existing. Not only that, but the pantheism of that culture, the many, many, many gods that they would worship were all around you, and the pressure was on you to be a part of that. 
And you would see all of this on the outside of you and you would recognize as well your own personal failures. And you would know that you had those times of weak faith when you didn't really believe as you should. And this is what you're facing. And this is, this is what the individuals are facing who received this letter to the Hebrews and verses 17 through 22. And in verses 17 through 22, the author of Hebrews gives four examples of faith. He gives them the example of Abraham. He gives them the example um, of uh, Isaac. He gives them the example of Jacob. And he gives them the example of Joseph. All four of these is examples of faith. And in each of them, he's showing them as they remember the situations in which these individuals lived and, and as he's looking at, at these examples of faith and he's inviting them to faith, he's helping them remember that there's more than meets the eye. As they look around at all of the things that are wrong around them, he's saying there's more than this and therefore you can look to the future with hope just as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all looked to the future with hope, And he calls on them, and he calls on us, to look to the future with hope. How do we do that? I believe there are three ways that he gives us in this passage. And the first is that we have to believe that God will provide, in verses 17 through 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. I want to read just a couple different uh, verses from Genesis chapter 22, which is the historical account of this uh, moment of, of Abraham offering up Isaac. And, and we're familiar with this story, but sometimes it's good to go back and let's, let's look really closely at what is said there so that we can be reminded of what was on Abraham's mind as he was moving forward to sacrifice his son in accordance with the command of God. Well, first of all, we look at verses 7 and 8, and we see that Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, just for a moment. Can you imagine what a heartbreaking question that was for Abraham? As he's walking up this mountain, and he's ready to sacrifice his own son, and his son is saying, Where is the sacrifice? Not knowing that it was to be him. And Abraham tells us what is on his mind at that moment as he answers this incredibly poignant question. And he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will provide becomes the theme of his mind. This is the focal point. In verse 14, after God has provided the ram that's caught in the thicket and he sacrifices the lamb, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. What was on Abraham's mind as he is commanded to offer up his son and as he seeks to offer up that offering? What was on his mind was the Lord will provide. I went to seminary at an age in which um, 
I didn't know of a single seminary student who took out a student loan for seminary. You didn't do that. That's not what happened. Most of the time, uh, you couldn't get a loan to go to seminary because it was a religious institution, and so that wasn't a possibility. That's all changed. But, but back then, one of the things I became convinced of is that uh, every seminary student that I was with and every seminary student that I'd heard of found financial struggles through seminary. It was hard. And I became convinced that a part of seminary, maybe more important than the classes that we would attend, was the experience of God providing. That we had to face that. And I remember a, a, a time as we had uh, moved to Greenville, to go to Greenville Seminary, convinced that God had, had called us there. And I just got news from the seminary that they were changing uh, some of the requirements for graduation. And it looked like, uh, it, you know, by my pessimistic moment that I was facing that I'd be there another 39 years. Um, it, was, it was a challenge. Uh, you know, I was having to work full-time to provide for the family and the, the job that I had, two jobs at that point. I was working at McDonald's part-time and I was selling swimming pools in March. Yeah, yeah, some of you are putting that all together and recognizing, okay, well, there wasn't a whole lot of action going on. And uh, just knew about the curriculum. Then I got a call from our, our home church back in Colorado and they told us that they were having to drop us uh, from support. They had been helping us up till that point. And I remember being just really discouraged and uh, just wondering, you know, what in the world is up? And I think it was maybe a day or two, got a call from the seminary, and a church in Alabama had decided they wanted to sponsor one of the students. Church in Alabama, I'd never even been in Alabama. And yet they asked to support us and provided for us, and we realized, okay, we can probably get through this in about a year and a half now. That was all that was left. And it was just that provision in that moment. God provided, and it was a certainty. And as we have faced different things in, in, our, in our life, in ministry, I know I've been able to go back to that and remember God provided. Do you remember the times in your life when God provided? Those times, maybe it's financial, maybe it's something entirely different. But God comes through, and he provides exactly what you need. God wants us to remember those moments as they become a, a foundation for us to stand upon. As, as the waves and the tides roll against us, we say, yes, but, but God provides. And I believe that. And I can look to the future with hope because I believe that God provides. The passage that we're, we're looking at also says that Abraham was tested. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he was tested. This idea of tested, I want us to consider that for a moment. That's really going to become the, the focal point of, of uh, much of uh, this point, is this idea of testing and what that means. And uh, it, it, it's a, a Greek word that's used there, and it has a couple different uh, meanings, and we can, we can look at that. But, but why are we tested? Have you ever wondered that? In school, we recognize that we're tested, but we can also see even two reasons for that, right? For most students, they feel like, well, we're being tested to find out where we, we don't know, right? That they're testing us to find out where we're wrong, what, what's wrong with what we think, right? Now, many of you are educators. How many of you educators think that? Right? Not a one. Teachers know, no, 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 no. We're testing the children so that they can demonstrate what they do know. And you see, it's, 
entirely different. Entirely different when we understand that. Now that paradigm will follow through as we look at this word that is translated as tested, because that word can also mean tempted. And it's translated that way in various passages, such as in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Same word that we've got that is used in front of us for, for testing. So it can mean tempt. And temptation means it's an opportunity to sin. Temptation is an opportunity to sin. Now think about the first moment. Jesus was taken out into the desert, and he was given opportunity to sin, was he not? The devil gave him three opportunities to sin, and Jesus resisted and did not give in. We are tempted, we are given opportunities to sin through the general circumstances of life, but also through the enticements of our, our uh, sin that is still inside us, right? That we are sinful people, and so we, we have certain areas that, that we have a tendency to, to give in to that sinful desire, and it, and it makes the temptation difficult for us, and we're challenged by that. We'll read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 about Jesus and what he was able to do with those temptations. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He was given all the opportunities to sin. He just never fell. The word also means to test. It's used that way in John chapter 6, verse 6, in which we read of, of Jesus in, in talking with uh, uh, Philip. And he says, this he was saying to test him that is Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. He was testing Philip. He was giving Philip an opportunity to show what he knew. He was giving Philip an opportunity to show what he believed. He was testing him. Test is also, not just like for temptation, it's an opportunity to sin. As a test, it's an opportunity to trust. Now, isn't that true of every temptation that you face? Isn't it also an opportunity to trust? That with that temptation or that testing, I'm faced with an opportunity. Will I sin or will I trust God? That's what I face in that moment. And Abraham was faced with that moment. He was tested. He was given an opportunity to trust. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 speak of this to us. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The hardships that you're going through are going to test your faith and it is going to show them to be beautiful. It's going to show that your faith is real and is going to demonstrate the fantastic work of the Spirit of God in your life. It's a testing that you're facing. And what God is doing in testing us is giving us an opportunity to show that we trust. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation or testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond that what you are able. But with the temptation or testing will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the hope that we have. That's our encouragement. That's what Abraham found as, as Abraham trusted God's power to raise Isaac from the dead. He trusted in that moment.
God wants to show the universe and you how much you trust him. That's why he tests you. And God knows your need. Think about Abraham for just a moment. Isaac is born, and Abraham believes that he needs Isaac, right? He does, to fulfill the promise of God. He believes, I need Isaac to fulfill this promise that God has given to me. And therefore, he believed that God could raise him from the dead. He says, I need Isaac to be alive, but God is calling on me to kill him. What did he resolve? How did he solve that in his own mind? Well, clearly God's going to raise him from the dead. And that's where he was. And that's why he was moving forward without the, the fear, if you will, ready to take the knife and to sacrifice his son because he believed that God could raise the dead. And if God was going to be faithful to the promise that he had given through Isaac, God would have to raise the dead. And so that's where he was moving forward and believing. But what Abraham really needed was a ram caught in the thicket, right? That's what he needed. He just didn't know that's what he needed. He expected God to do it one way, but God said, oh, I have this other plan. Doesn't he do that to us all the time? We are quite certain of what God's going to do, and he just kind of grins, and he says, no, no, actually, I'm going to try to do it another way. Now, it's important for us to remember that, because that really affects the way that we begin to live our lives. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, there is this poignant moment in the life of Jesus. And this one healing takes up a, a large portion of chapter 9 of John, and I want us to, to think about this for just a moment. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the, work, the works of God might be displayed in him. We're familiar with that, right? We're familiar with the question. They saw a man who's blind, and they're saying, Well, clearly that's the result of sin, right? And it's a conclusion that, that we, might, we might resist it, but the reality is we understand why they ask that, right? We see something like that, and we assume that there's something wrong with that man, right? That's where we would go immediately. And so when he says he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him, oh, okay, so he was born blind so that Jesus could heal him, right? But wouldn't that then imply that a person who's born blind, who stays blind and isn't healed, did not display the works of God? That's a little bit cruel to that individual, isn't it? What if what Jesus is saying is, this man was born blind because the works that God wanted to do through him could only happen through his blindness? What if Jesus was saying, what you view as being an awful thing, I view as something that is going to produce a magnificent faith in this individual, which it did, didn't it? That man trusted Jesus like so few people ever. And is it possible that that trust happened in the crucible of his blindness? And that that blindness was necessary, that the work of God in producing faith in him would be seen, that it couldn't have been seen if he'd have been like the norm. 
You see what this displays is the way that we look at this passage is that we prefer the norm as opposed to the outliers. We always assume the norm is blessed by God and the outliers are not. And we miss something very significant about the value of an individual who maybe has what we would call a handicap. Who maybe they have been made a certain way by God so that His power might be seen in them. Now here's where we need to take that from the the theoretical and bring it into our specific lives and what we're facing in our lives. Consider this. I'm going to move on with that. God provides what we need in order to increase our faith. What are you facing? What if God has brought it into your life for the purpose of displaying His work? What if that's why I'm dealing with this illness that I'm facing? What if it's designed by God to display His work and I do need it as hard as it is or the loss, or the betrayal, or even sometimes my own personal failings, as it appears was the case with the Apostle Paul, who prayed three times that the thorn in the flesh would be taken from him, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. To begin to recognize that what God has provided is what I need. That's a different level of faith, isn't it? That's... That's not just the, the average, ordinary faith. I like uh, Patrick has a, a rap song. Um, and, and one of the comments is, I'm, I'm more than the median. Amen. That's a faith that's a little above what's kind of common and acceptable. That's the kind of faith that puts everything on Jesus. And I'm going to really, truly rest in him. To know that God will provide, recognizing why we're tested, and that He knows my needs. And then the second step is I need to believe that God has a plan. I need to believe that God has a plan. What's the uh, Mike Tyson quote that I, I think I read somewhere that it's actually a, a World War II general had made the same comment, and, but we always give it to Mike Tyson, right? Everybody has a plan until what? They're punched in the mouth, right? And, and you know what? That's kind of profound. <laughs> and, and I've experienced it, I've seen it, and it's just true. It's like, well, here's how I'm going to handle it. Pap, ah, i got to do something different than that, right? And all of a sudden then it's just all gone, it's just chaos. Well, that's the way that, that life works because circumstances in our life change our plans all the time, don't they? Uh, you, you look at uh, the movie Les Miserables and the story of Fantine is this girl, and she sings the song about her dream, right? That, that she thought everything was going to be wonderful, and this young man had come into her life, and, and they loved one another, and then she's pregnant, and then he disappears. And now she finds herself having to be, live as a prostitute in order to provide for her baby, right? And she says, it's so, so different. The dreams that I dreamed are so different from this hell that I'm living. And the recognition of, of the, the, the absolute change and how it wasn't what I expected, because circumstances affect our plans, Someone said one time, something along the lines of, uh, if you want to make God laugh, tell him what your plans are. 
But success involves our being adaptable. When we get punched in the mouth, when circumstances come against us, that we're able to adapt, to be able to do something different. Now that's for us. But you know what's awesome? It's not so for God. That's true for us, that circumstances affect our plans, but not with God. God is the one who in Isaiah chapter 46 says this about himself. He says in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past? For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is what God has to say about his plans. They are certain. They are absolute. We can depend on them. Ephesians 1.11 puts it this way. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. God is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. He has a plan, and he is accomplishing that plan. Therefore, we can remain optimistic. And not kind of a blind optimism, like the little boy who's playing Little League Baseball, and he's the only one in the dugout, the team's out in the field, and a man walks by and says, hey, what's the score? The boy says, they're up 42 to 0. I says, oh, I'm sorry, you must be discouraged. He said, nope, we haven't gone to bat yet. Well, okay, <laughs> well, all right, we're, we still got our bat, we're, we're ready to go. So it's only 42 to 0, we got them right where we want them, right? And, and, and not that kind of optimism that may, may be missing some level of connection to reality. But there is an optimism in our faith because God does have a plan, right? And we know he is going to accomplish his purposes in our lives. In Isaac, look at, at verse uh, 20, by faith... Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Isaac blessed both Jacob and Esau. Now when he blessed Esau, he knew that Jacob had stolen the blessing, right? He was aware of what had happened, that, that Jacob had come in dressed like his brother. His brother had gone out to, to hunt some meal and to, to make a meal for his dad and bring it in, and Esau was going to give it to his dad, and his dad was going to bless Esau, but, but Isaac's eyes were bad, and so uh, uh, Jacob's mom says, here, put this goat skin on your, on your hands, and, and, uh, which probably made him smell wonderful, which maybe helped him smell like his brother, I don't know. But uh, then he goes into Isaac, and he says, yeah, this is Esau, and so he blesses him. He steals the blessing. Jacob knew that. And he still had something good in anticipation for the future of Esau. But he had a blessing for Esau. And he told him that he wouldn't forever be under the yoke of Jacob. But they would find himself free from that. And he speaks that blessing to Esau. So Isaac, in looking to the future, sees this and is able to offer a blessing to both of them. Jacob, as we look at uh, verse 21. By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob is near death in Egypt. Remember that? 
He'd left the promised land and gone into Egypt when he blesses the sons of Joseph. And there he is in Egypt. And even in this difficult situation where they're running away from, from this uh, horrible famine that has fallen upon the earth, and they're in a foreign land, depending upon the kindness of a, 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 of a king who doesn't trust their God, even in that spot, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. Joseph's sons. Joseph's sons, remember, who were Joseph and his wife, who was an Egyptian. And he blesses those sons. Even in that difficult situation, he blesses them. And that is to say, he looks to the future and he sees good in their lives. And he sees good for them. He's optimistic. What are you facing? You notice none of these blessings took away the hardships that they faced. They still had to go through incredibly difficult times, right? But even in going through those difficult times, that wasn't the end of the story, was it? He said, there's something more. I shared last week about a, a, a dear friend who just uh, recently passed away, and, and the, the, the truth of that is, the truth of it, not, not the cute saying, the truth of it is that the difficulties that he has been facing, the hardships that he's been facing for the last 14 months are gone. The hardships that he faced for his entire life are gone as he now walks in newness of life before his Savior. That's truth. You see, the promise of the blessing isn't that God will take away every bad thing and will prevent it from ever falling upon us. But it's that he has a plan and that he will bring about that which is good. The old Romans 8.28 For God causes all things to work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good. They don't just naturally happen to fall into place, but He makes it happen. So to remain optimistic, believing that to be true, that His plan is good, and then abandon yourself to God. Notice what it says about Jacob. By faith, Jacob... As he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. And then what? Worshipped. Leaning on the top of his staff. He worshipped. Genesis 47. I want to encourage you to, to look at this section, verses 7 through 10. It, it shows a little bit of uh, Jacob talking with Pharaoh. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Remember, the greater always blesses the lesser. And it was Jacob who blessed Pharaoh. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Do you see the pessimism of that? How many people do you know that would be 130 years old and say, few have been my days? Right? But that was the pessimistic view that he had at that moment. It's like, oh, it's just been bad. Has it been all bad? Didn't God bless him amazingly? Wasn't he incredibly blessed by God and just prospering everything that he did? 
But he remembered this other. His focus was in another place. He saw this, this hardship. And yet by the time he died, something else happened. But this is his perspective. He sees it. It's been hard. And what does he do? Leans on his staff. And he worships. You remember the definition of worship that we use here? To abandon yourself to God. Even though few and hard have been my days, yet I relinquish myself to you, my God and my King. Even though it's been this way, yet I will worship you. Sound a little bit like Job? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him? No matter what I face, I abandon myself in that place of worship. There comes a place where I'm just going to give it all up. It isn't my plan after all, God. It's your plan. It isn't my goals. It's your goals. You will accomplish that which is good and right. To believe that God will provide is the first step. To believe that God has a plan is the second. And the third is to choose to promote faith in others. Let's look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. I just want to walk us through a reminder of Joseph's life. Really a remarkable life, right? First thing we know about Joseph is that as a young man, he became convinced of God's call, right? He sensed the call of God even as a young man. The second thing we see is that he was despised by his brothers, Maybe because he sensed God's call, that could be. Third, we see that he was honored by his father, Jacob. Then we see that he was thrown into a pit by his brothers. Inside that pit, he heard his brothers talking about things like, we're going to kill him. Imagine that. Then he's sold as a slave. And he goes into slavery from where he's thrown into jail and forgotten. Eventually he comes out and he's awarded power in Egypt. Where he serves Pharaoh and Egypt. It's important. He worked for the benefit of Pharaoh and for the benefit of Egypt. And then he's reunited with his brothers. Now some of us think, oh, it had been a long time since he'd seen his brothers. That was a wonderfully warm re- uh, reunion, right? Can you imagine the family reunion in which the brothers had thrown you into a pit and talked about how to kill you and eventually told, decided instead to just sell you into slavery? This is a difficult, difficult thing that he had to to face in this reunion. And he became the leader of Israel. Israel being the sons of Jacob. He became their leader. He became the one that was in charge. So we read then these words in that context, just recognizing all that Joseph has gone through. And and we're told in verse 17 of chapter 50 of Genesis. Thus you shall say to Joseph, 
Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For I, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now we can look at the magnificent theology that, that Joseph clearly had in saying you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I want to look at something else. I want to look at the love that he showed by, by ministering to their faith. He sought to strengthen their faith. He knew this is what you need. Twice he told them, don't be afraid. Because the opposite of fear is faith. And then he assures them, I'm going to take care of you. And he comforted them. He sought to promote faith in the brothers who had thrown him in a pit, discussed killing him, and sold him into slavery. He wanted to invest in their faith. Joseph sought to be a benefit to the children of Israel and to help them trust so we too can do that. And we can do that by following something of what we see about Joseph from Hebrews 11, and that is by anticipating God's involvement. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He, he made mention of the exodus, and we see that in, in Genesis 50 and verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he reminds them of the word of God. He anticipated what God was doing. It's probable that he foresaw the slavery that they were going to undergo. Right? It seems as though that's the case, that God will bring you up out of here. Recognizing, yeah, apart from the hand of God, you're probably going to be here for a while. So it's God who's going to have to bring you up out of here. Maybe it's because he was remembering Genesis chapter 15 and verses 13 and 14, where God told uh, Abraham what was going to take place in, in Egypt. And, uh, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, I guess it's in verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So there was this promise, and, and I'm certain that Joseph was aware of this. It's probable his father had told him what his grandfather had heard. And he was giving him these words, and he's aware, oh, this is where God is going to accomplish this. Plus also, uh, Joseph was known to like, have dreams and stuff, right? And what did he do? He challenged his brothers to believe in the faithfulness of God, didn't he? God's going to deliver you. Trust him. Trust him. 
Not just trust Him, but teach your children and your children's children's so that in 400 years they'll still trust Him. He calls on them to believe. Is God at work today? Okay, let's, let's pretend we're a bunch of Baptists for just a minute. Is God at work today? Amen. Amen. That wasn't awful. So I, I just want to say, that was good. And some of you were still, and a couple were, which is the Presbyterian form of amening. But uh, God is at work today. We believe that. We know that to be true. It is, it is, it is central to what we believe. Even in the midst of disease and war and hatred and the failures of the church, is God still at work today? He is. And you know what he's working for? And for this, I think uh, Randy Steele and his influence in, in my life, and he would say this almost every week, that God is working for two things. And everything God does, he has two things in mind. He is working for his glory and your good. That's what he's doing. Everything he's doing is always for the purpose of giving glory to himself and good to his people. Everything that he does is always intended to give glory to himself and good to his people. I want to live as though that is true. Kids, you who are in my Sunday school class, you remember what faith is. It's living consistent with perceived truth. The perceived truth is that God in everything that he does is working for his glory and our good. I'm going to believe that to be true. What good is God doing in your life? Isn't that a great question to ask? Maybe tomorrow morning as you have devotions. As you're meeting with God and you're praying. Look at your life and see what's the good he's doing. We have a tendency to look at the stuff we don't like in our life and pray really hard that God will take it away, right? What if I turn my focus and say, thank you, God, for the good that you're doing? What good is he doing in that other person's life? What as I begin to pray for someone and I want God to take away the bad stuff, I begin to pray and ask, God, what good are you doing in their life? Anticipate God's involvement and then invite others to follow your faith. Joseph gave instructions concerning his bones. That's faith. That's faith. He said, show that you believe that God is going to take us out of here by teaching your kids what they need to do with my bones, right? And be prepared to act upon it because God will be taking you out of here and I don't want to stay here. I want my bones to go with you. Not unlike a friend of mine who moved up into the north and his wife said, uh, if I die while we're there, you've got to promise me you're taking my bones back home. Okay, <laughs> there we are. So folks will have different uh, views on that. But uh, that was what he was asking. He's saying, this is the faith that you'll do. I want you to show that you believe that God is going to deliver you. It reminds me of the goals of parenting. Goal as a parent is not to have godly children. The goal of a parent is not to have Christian children. The goal of a parent is two. Number one, I have a goal as a parent that I will live as an example of faith in Jesus Christ before my children. Number two, my goal as a parent is I will invite my children to put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's the only goals that we have 
as parents. Because it isn't about what I, it isn't about what they do, it's about what I do and my responsibility in this situation. And it's to invite others to follow your faith. Do you sometimes wonder how to do that? What would I say if someone said, oh, what do I need to do to be saved? Uh, you need to come to church on Sunday. Pastor will tell you. Right? That's an okay answer. There are better ones. In September, we're going to have an evangelism conference here at Providence for the purpose of equipping us to know how to tell people how to be saved. Will you come and be a part of that? So we started out by thinking about what the the Jews were seeing, the Jewish Christians, when they were looking at the future. What about us today? As we're viewing the future, we recognize that we live in a time of societal antipathy in which we see tribal groups all around us. And each group views every other group with hatred and fear and suspicion, right? Into which the the looking at the, the other group um, it's not okay to disagree with us. To disagree with us is, is hateful, and you must hate us, and so therefore you're the enemy. And so there's this, this tribalness that is, that is just dividing people from people with a suspicion that it isn't anymore that we say, oh, well, that person has a different idea. No, no, now we look at them and we assume that they're corrupt, right? Anyone who disagrees with me is clearly corrupt and wicked through and through. And it's just silly, but it's where we go, and it's what we find ourselves in our society today. We have violence and immorality around us, and it's rampant. The philosophical perspective of our day is subjectivism. That is to say, the belief that truth is what you think it is. And so if you feel it, that makes it true. We also fail. And sometimes we have weak faith. And we're supposed to look to the future with hope. Yep. Yep. Because Hebrews eleven seventeen through 22 calls us to look to the future with hope. To do that, we're going to have to believe that God will provide. We have to believe that God has a plan. And we have to promote faith in others. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. Thank you. Thanks for your grace and your mercy. We pray now as we move toward the sacrament of your supper that you'll strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.